0: Do you think when I mention the word Iran, maybe you think amazing ancient civilization, amazing landscapes, Shia country, the Ayatollah, maybe a state sponsor of terror, Hamas, a defender of the faith, all of these? Well, Iran today, in 2021 means different things to different people. It means one thing to the Sunni Arab countries, another to Israel, the US and the West. For most people though, it's just another country in the wilderness of many other countries with neither a positive or negative perspective. I want to spend some time understanding what makes Iran today. Who are the Iranians of today? What made Iran? modern Iran. And in my mind, it begins in 1901 and rolls all the way up to 1979. Muzaffar ad-Din Shah Qajar was the fifth Shah of Iran of the Qajar dynasty, reigning from 1896 until his death in 1907. In 1901, he granted a 60-year petroleum search concession to a William Knox Darcy. Darcy paid about £20,000, which is the equivalent of £2.1 million, in 2019 money. On the 31st of July 1907, Darcy withdrew from his private holdings in Persia and transferred them to the British-owned Burma Oil Company. On the 26th of May 1908, the company struck oil. The company grew slowly until World War I, when Persia's strategic importance led the British government to buy a controlling share in the company, essentially nationalising British production of oil in Iran. All the while that was going on, the Persian Constitutional Revolution took place between 1905 and 1911. This revolution led to the establishment of a parliament in Persia, i.e. Iran, During this Qajar dynasty, it was a period of unprecedented debate in a burgeoning press and new economic opportunities. Many groups fought to shape the course of the revolution, and all segments of society were in some way changed and shaped by it. The old order which the king Nazardin Shah Qajar had struggled so long to sustain, was finally replaced by a new institution, forms of new expression and social order and political order. Mazafar Shah Qajar signed the 1906 constitution shortly before his own death in 1907. He was succeeded by Muhammad Ali Shah, who abolished the constitution and bombarded the parliament in 1908 with Russian and British support. This led to another pro-constitutional movement. The constitutionalist forces marched into Tehran, forced Muhammad Ali Shah's abdication in favor of his young son, Ahmad Shah Qajar, and re-established that constitution in 1909. The constitutional revolution was opposed by the British and the Russians, who, att- who attempted to subvert it through backing of Muhammad Ali Shah Qajar, i.e. the son of Muzaffar-e-Din Shah who tried to break up the democratic government by force. A guerrilla movement led by Sattar Khan deposed him in 1910. If things sound confusing now, don't worry, hold on to your horses, it's about to get yet more confusing. You see, in the aftermath of World War I, there was general widespread political dissatisfaction with the royalty terms of the British Petroleum Concession under the Anglo Persian Oil Company, known as APOC, whereby Persia received 16% of net profits. In 1921, after years of severe mismanagement under the Qajar dynasty, a coup d'etat backed by the British brought a general known as Riza Khan into the government. By 1923, he had become Prime Minister and gained a reputation as an effective politician with a lack of corruption. By 1925, under his influence, Parliament voted to remove Ahmad Shah Qajar from the throne and Riza Khan was crowned Riza Shah Pahlavi of the Pahlavi dynasty. Riza Shah, began a rapid and successful modernization programme in Persia, which up until that point had been amongst the most impoverished countries in the world. Nevertheless, Reza Shah was also a very harsh ruler who did not tolerate dissent. By the 1930s, he had suppressed all opposition and had sidelined the democratic aspects of the constitution. Opponents were jailed and in some cases even executed. Although some agreed with his policies, many, many others did not. One particular opponent was a chap named Mohammad Mogadish, who was jailed in 1940. This experience gave him a lasting dislike for authoritarian rule and the monarchy, and it helped make Mossadegh a dedicated advocate of complete oil nationalisation in Iran. The British angered the Persians by intervening, ultimately, in their domestic affairs. In the 1930s, Reza Shah tried to terminate the APOC concession that the Qajar dynasty had granted, but Iran was still weak and Britain would ultimately not allow it. The concession was renegotiated on terms again favourable to the British, although the Darcy concession was softened slightly. On the 21st of March 1935, Reza Shah changed the name of the country from Persia to Iran. The Anglo-Persian Oil Company was then just renamed the Anglo-Iranian Oil Company, i.e. the AIOC. In 1941, after the Nazis' invasion of the USSR, the British and Commonwealth of Nations forces and the Red Army invaded Iran. Reza Shah had declared neutrality in World War II and tried to balance between the two major powers, Britain and Nazi Germany. Well, you might wonder why they did invade Iran. The primary reason for the invasion was to secure Iran's oil fields and the Trans-Iranian Railway to deliver supplies to the Soviet Union. Reza Shah was arrested, deposed and exiled by the British and some other prominent officials were jailed as well. Reza Shah's 22-year-old son, Mohammad Reza Pahlavi, became the Shah of Iran. The new Shah, unlike his father, was initially a mild leader and at times slightly indecisive. During the 1940s, he did not for the most part take an independent role in the government, and much of Reza Shah's authoritarian policies were rolled back. Iranian democracy effectively was restored during this period as a byproduct. The British soldiers withdrew from Iran after the end of the war. However, under Stalin, the Soviet Union partly remained by sponsoring two people's democratic republics within Iran's own borders. Nationalist leaders in Iran became influential by seeking a reduction in long-term foreign interventions in their country, especially the oil concession, which was very profitable for the West and not very profitable for Iran. The British-controlled AIOC refused to allow its books to be audited to determine whether the Iranian government was being paid what had been promised. The British irked the Iranian population to no end. US objectives in the Middle East remained the same between 1947 and 1952, but its strategy had changed. Washington remained publicly in solidarity and privately at odds with Britain, its World War II ally. Britain's empire was steadily weakening and with an eye on the international crisis, the US reappraised its interests and the risks of being identified with British colonial interests. In 1949, an assassin attempted to kill the Shah. Shocked by this experience and emboldened by public sympathy for his injury, the Shah began to take an increasingly active role in politics. He established the Senate of Iran which had been a part of the constitution of 1906 but had never been convened. The Shah had the right to appoint half the senators and he chose men with sympath- sympathies to his aims. Moshadegh thought this increase in the Shah's political power was not democratic. He believed that the Shah should reign but not rule similar to Europe's constitutional monarchies. Led by Mogadesh political parties and opponents of the Shah's policies branded together to form a coalition known as the National Front. Oil oil nationalisation was a major policy goal for the party. By 1951, the National Front had won majority seats for the popularly elected parliament. According to Iran's constitution, the majority elected party in the parliament would give a vote of confidence for its own prime ministerial candidate after which the Shah would appoint the candidate to power similar to the UK system. The Prime Minister, Haj Ali Ramzara, who was opposed to the oil nationalisation programme on technical grounds, was assassinated by hardline line e islam i.e. a spiritual leader of the Ayatollah Abol Qusim Kahani, a mentor to the future Ayatollah Khomeini, had been appointed Speaker of the Parliament by the National Front. The Shah and the Prime Minister had an antagonistic relationship. Part of the problem stemmed from the fact that Mogadish was connected by blood to the former royal Qajar dynasty and saw the current Pahlavi king as a pretender to the throne. But the real issue stemmed from the fact that Mogadish represented a pro-democratic force that wanted to temper the Shah's rule in Iranian politics. He wanted the Shah to be just a ceremonial monarch rather than a ruling monarch and thus giving the elected government power over the unelected Shah. In late 1951, Iran's parliament, in a near-unanimous vote, approved the oil nationalisation agreement. The bill was widely popular among most Iranians and generated a huge wave of nationalism and immediately put Iran at loggerheads with Britain. The UK now faced the newly elected nationalist government in Iran, where Mogadish, with strong backing of the Iranian parliament and its people, demanded more favourable arrangements with Britain. Britain rigorously opposed that. Mohammad Mogadish attempted to negotiate with the AIOC, but the company rejected his proposed compromise. An Iranian proposal would divide the profits from oil 50-50 between Iran and Britain. Against the recommendation of the United States, Britain refused this proposal and began planning to undermine and overthrow the Iranian government. Just as you do, I guess. In practical terms, though, the National Iranian Oil Company suffered decreased production because of Iranian inexperience in running them. They needed British expertise and the AIOC ordered those British technicians not to work with them, thus provoking what became known as the Abdan crisis that was aggravated also by the Royal Navy's blockading its export markets to pressure the Iranians to not nationalise its petroleum. The Iranian revenues were greater because the profits went to Iran's national treasury rather than to private foreign oil companies. By September 1951, the British had ceased Abdan oil field production, forbidding British export to Iran of key British commodities, including sugar and steel, and had frozen Iran's hard currency accounts in British banks. British Prime Minister Clement Attlee considered seizing the Abdan oil refinery by force, but instead settled on an embargo by the Royal Navy, stopping any ship transporting Iranian oil for carrying so-called stolen property. On his re-election as Prime Minister in 1951, Winston Churchill took an even harder stance against the Iranians. In August 1952, Iranian Prime Minister Mogadish invited an American oil executive to visit Iran and the Truman administration welcomed that invitation. However, that suggestion upset Churchill, who insisted that the US not undermine his campaign to isolate the Iranians because of British support for the US in the Korean War. In mid-1952, Britain's embargo of Iranian oil was devastatingly effective. British agents in Tehran worked to subvert the government of Mogadishu who sought help from President Truman in the US and then the World Bank, but ultimately to no avail. Iranians were becoming poorer and unhappier by the day and Mogadish's political coalition was fraying. To make matters worse, the Speaker of Parliament Ayatollah Khashani, Mogadish's main clerical supporter, became increasingly opposed to the Prime Minister because he was not turning Iran into an Islamic state. By 1953, he had completely turned on him and supported the coup, depriving Mogadish of religious support while giving it to the Shah. In the parliamentary election in the spring of 1952, Mogadish had little to fear from a free vote since despite the country's problems, he was widely admired as a hero. A free vote, however, was not what others were planning. By this time, British agents had fanned out across the country, bribing candidates and the regional bosses who controlled them. Robert Zanha alone spent over £1.5 million smuggled in biscuit tins to bribe Iranians, and later his colleague Norman Derbyshire admitted that the actual coup cost the British government a further £700,000. They hoped to fill them parliament with deputies who would ultimately vote to depose the Prime Minister. It would be a coup carried out by legal means. Worried about Britain's other interests in Iran and believing that Iran's nationalism was really a Soviet-backed plot, the British ultimately persuaded the US that Iran was falling to the Soviets, effectively exploiting the American Cold War mindset. President Harry Truman was busy fighting a war out there in Korea. He did not agree to overthrow the government of Prime Minister Mohammed Mogadish. However, in 1953, when Dwight D. Eisenhower became president, the UK convinced the US to undertake a joint coup d'etat. By 1953, economic sanctions caused by the British embargo and political turmoil began to take a major toll on the Prime Minister's popularity and political power. He was increasingly blamed for the economic and political crisis. Political violence was becoming widespread in the form of street clashes between rival political groups. By mid-1953, a mass of resignations by the Prime Minister's parliamentary supporters reduced the National Front's seats in Parliament. A referendum to dissolve Parliament and give the Prime Minister power to make law was submitted to voters and it passed with a 99.9% approval. The Shah himself initially opposed the coup plans and supported the oil nationalisation, but he joined in after being informed by the CIA that he too would be deposed if he didn't play along. This experience ultimately left him with rather a pro-American attitude and an anti-British attitude. Then came Operation Ajax. The official pretext for the start of the coup was Mogadishu's decree to dissolve parliament giving himself and his cabinet complete power to rule while effectively stripping the Shah of his powers. It resulted in him being accused of giving himself total and dictatorial powers. The Shah, who had been resisting the CIA's demand for the coup, finally agreed to support it. Having obtained the Shah's agreement, the Americans executed on the coup. Royal decrees dismissing Mogadish and appointing loyalist General Zahadi were drawn up by the coup plotters and signed to law by Shah. On the 15th of August, Colonel Nasiri, the commander of the Imperial Guard, delivered to Moghadez a decree from the Shah dismissing him. Moghadez, who had been warned of the plot, probably by the Communist Party, rejected the order and had Nasiri arrested. Moghadez argued at his trial after the coup that under the Iranian constitutional monarchy system, the Shah had no constitutional right to issue an order for the elected prime minister's dismissal without parliament's consent. All this action was being publicised within Iran, by the U.S. CIA, and in the United States, by the U.S. New York Times. Mogadishu supporters took to the streets in violent protest. Following this now failed coup d'etat attempt, the Shah, accompanied by his second wife, fled to Baghdad, arriving unannounced. The Shah asked for permission for himself and his consort to stay in Baghdad for a few days before going to Europe. After high-level government consultations, they were escorted to what was known in Iraq as the White House, the Iraqi government's guesthouse, before flying to Italy in a plane flown by Mohammed Amir Khatami. Soon after, on the 19th of August, hired infiltrators posing as Communist Party members began to organise a communist revolution. They came and encouraged the real communist members to join in. Soon, the communist members took to the streets attacking virtually any symbol of capitalism and looting private businesses and destroying shops. The CIA hired two of the biggest gangsters of the South Tehran ghetto, Icy Ramadan and Shabhan Jafari, aka Brainless Shabhan, to mobilize protest against Bangladesh. By the middle of the day, large crowds of regular citizens armed with improvised weapons took the streets in mass demonstrations and beat back the Communist Party members. Under Zahidi's authority, the army left his barracks and drove off the communist communists and then stormed all government buildings with the support of demonstrators. At this point, Mogadish fled after a tank fired a single shell into his house, but he later turned himself into the army's custody. The Shah stayed in a hotel in Italy until he learned what was actually going on, upon which he chokingly declared, I knew they loved me. Dulles, the director of the CIA at the time, flew back with the Shah from Rome to Tehran. Zahedi officially replaced Mogadesh, Mogadesh was arrested, tried and originally sentenced to death. But on the Shah's personal orders, his sentence was commuted to just three years of solitary confinement in a military prison, followed by house arrest until his death. This coup caused the U.S. long-lasting damage on its reputation. After the 1953 Iranian coup d'etat, Pahlavi had aligned with the United States and the Western Bloc to rule more firmly as an authoritarian monarch. He relied heavily on the US for support to hold on to power, which he held on for 26 years. This led to the 1963 White Revolution and the arrest and exile of Ayatollah Khamenei in 1964. So what was the White Revolution? Well, it was a series of legislative reforms introduced by the Shah, introduced over a long period of 16 years, with the first six being introduced in 1963. These included things like Abolishing feudalism, nationalizing of some forests, a privatization drive, allowing women the right to vote, education for all, workers' rights, social security, national insurance, among many other things. There was, a ma- there was actually a minor industrial revolution during this period of reform. Port facilities were improved, the Trans-Iranian Railway was expanded, and the main roads connecting Tehran and provincial capitals were built Many small factories opened up specialising in clothing, food processing, cement, tiles, paper and home appliances. Larger factories for textiles, machine tools and car assemblies were also opened. In the beginning, the White Revolution received most of its criticism from two main groups, one, the clergy, and two, the landlords. The landlords were angry about land reforms because their land was bought by the government and then sold in smaller plots to the citizenry at a lower price. They also did not appreciate the government undercutting their authority when it came to dealing with peasants or land labourers. The Shia clergy were also angered at the reforms that removed much of their traditional powers in the realms of education and family law, as well as lessening their previously strong influence in the rural areas. The group, or more appropriately, the man who most openly opposed the white revolution and the Shah himself, was Khomeini, later known as Ayatollah Khomeini. Although the clergy in Iran were not happy about many aspects of the white revolution, such as granting suffrage to women and the secular local election bill, the clergy were not actively protesting. Khomeini, on the other hand, seemed to undergo a profound change of thought from the traditional role and practice of the Shiite clergy and actively spoke out against the new reforms and the Shah. In a fiery speech at the Fayyaz school in June 1963, Khomeini spoke out against the Shah's brutality towards student protests, and for the first time, it was a speech attacking the Shah personally himself. That speech led to Khomeini's exile, but being outside of Iran did not stop Khomeini's protests, nor did it weaken his influence inside of Iran. Khomeini also attacked provisions of the reforms that would allow members of Iran's non-Muslim community to be elected or appointed to local offices. Amidst massive tension between Khomeini and the Shah, demonstrations began in October 1977, developing into a campaign of civil resistance that included both secular and religious elements. The protests rapidly intensified in 1978 because of the burning of the Rex cinema, which was seen as a trigger of the revolution and between August and December of that year, strikes and demonstrations paralysed the country. The Shah left Iran in exile on the 16th of January 1979, as the last Persian monarch. He left his duties to a regency council, and a Shapur Paktir was appointed as an opposition-based prime minister. Ayatollah Khomeini was invited back to Iran by the government and returned to Tehran to a greeting by several thousand Iranians. On the 11th of February, guerrillas and rebel troops overwhelmed the loyal troops of the Shah and brought Khomeini to official power. Iran voted by national referendum to become an Islamic republic on the 1st of April 1979 and to formulate and approve a new theocratic republican constitution whereby Khomeini became supreme leader of the country in December 1979. This revolution was unusual for the surprise it created throughout the Western world. It lacked many of the traditional customary causes of revolution, such as defeat in war, and maybe a fiscal crisis, a peasant rebellion, discontrolled military, and so on and so forth. It ultimately occurred in a nation that was experiencing somewhat relative prosperity, even though, even though it had gone through coups and revolution, coups and revolution, coups and revolution, often sponsored by foreign countries, still caused surprise in the West, produced profound change at great speed. In addition to all of this, the revolution sought a global Shia revival and uprooting of the Sunni hegemony in the region. It was a nonviolent revolution, and it helped to redefine the meaning and practice of modern revolutions. Although there was violent in its aftermath, but let's not go down that road. The aftermath of the revolution had Massive impact for the world. You now had not a communist state or a capitalist state, but a theocratic state. You had a Shia theocracy, resulting in massive Sunni-Shia rivalry that had not been seen for a long time. The subsequent Iran-Iraq war was such an example. The Iranian-backed Hamas as a terror organization became a reality. And America's proxy in the region, Israel, became a victim of Iran's foreign policy. Iran is an ancient culture. It is not going anywhere. The future, who knows? But what do we know? What we know is that the 1979 revolution replaced what was in of itself a product of the 1953 revolution, that was a product of the 1921 revolution, all because of a desire to control their own natural resources and internal strife. It allowed foreign powers to fish in troubled waters. The 1979 revolution changed that. For some, it was better. For others, it was way worse. And as we sit here in mid-2021, all I can say is the rest is history. In terms of lessons learnt for the Iranian people, after so many years of coups and revolutions and coups and revolutions hatched by Washington, D.C. and London, was that in order to survive, you need to protect your borders and you need to protect your sovereignty and you need to gain your strength. If you're not united internally, you're going to collapse externally. And evidence of that was littered throughout the early part and the mid part of the 20th century. It is unsurprising, therefore, that the Iranian regime, post-1979, held so much content for the United States and the United Kingdom. Indeed, if you look at policy towards Iran by these countries post-1979, it's been pretty similar. How can we get another coup? How can we get another revolution? Iran, in turn, uses that and attacks Israel as its US proxy in the region. And it fights the Saudis for Islamic domination in the Middle East, the Shia versus the Sunni, and the Arabs against the Persians. The problem for the Americans right now, though, is in 2021, that for the best part of the last 20 to 30 years, they have put their nose in the region and are deeply impacted and have picked a side. They have picked the Arab Sunni side in the battle against Iran. And that is ultimately the crux of the problem in 2021 and will be unless that is ultimately resolved somehow. From the Iranian point of view, the one thing that they should not do is give up sovereignty again. It was pretty hard fought and won. The last thing you want to do is give that up. The challenge for the Iranians is going to be how to keep the sovereignty, how to keep the Arabs in check, how to keep nuclear deterrence, and to gain international trade. And what I think the future is going to bring is that the Iranians aren't going to look west. They're going to look East. They're going to look North. They're going to look at China, and they're going to look at Russia. And as increasingly China becomes more powerful, Iran will trade with China and deal with Russia. And if that means that it does no longer have to deal with the West, it might be, as far as they're concerned, their gain and the West's loss. I also think that Iran's obsession with bringing down Israel is a thorn in its side and ultimately a negative view on its own foreign policy. Iran needs to recognize Israel and move on and deal with its internal problems ASAP. You have been listening to an Alternative History Podcast. Please like and subscribe on your platform of choice.